You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, I think he's running a little bit hot tonight. Here is our captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Big October Fest by the hardworking folks over at the Big Brewing Company, Garage Grade 3 and three-quarter bottle caps out of five. Big stands for Beer is Good Brewing Company, and they are exactly right. And you know who else is exactly right? These great folks right here. First up, a big cheers to cats in the great white north. A big shout-out to Clancy in Yates Center, Kansas. Next up, we have Melody in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And a big we like your jib to Holly in Tucson, Arizona. All right, Captain, here we go. We got uh, Marcus from Arkansas. Big cheers to Marcus. And last but certainly not least, we have Gina and Mundy Lynn. That cannot be right. Illinois, wherever you are, Gina, we thank you. We love you. Everyone that contributed to this week's beer fund, we thank you and love you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N, beer run. Make sure you sign up on our mailing list so you know when we're having a garage sale. And for all of our old episodes, download the Stitcher app. They are free. And check out our bonus show called Off the Record on Stitcher Premium. And that is enough of the business. All right. Thank you, Captain. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
inside the Woodruff's Royce City, Texas home, family friend Todd Williams found the obviously slain couple and then quickly exited the trailer to call police who arrived on the scene at about 4.30 p.m. And just to be clear, since they have two houses, they were staying in their new house, and that's the house that they were found dead in. From the book Railroaded, the married couple was sitting close together on a sofa before the TV, and both had been shot and stabbed multiple times. Dennis was shot once in the face and had nine stab wounds, some as deep as five inches, to his face, neck, and upper torso. Norma was shot three times in the face and had a four-inch front-to-back gash across her neck. Norma was turning into Dennis as if for protective cover, and Dennis held in his rigid hand a chewing tobacco spit cup. Their clothes and the sofa were blood-soaked. The television was on, but all the lights were off and the cardboard box on which the TV sat had blood spatter. The firing was done from just inches away as indicated by the tight patterns of dark soot and red stipple on their skin surrounding the bullet entries. The medical examiner characterized soot as the very fine, smoky material that comes out of the gun when it's fired and is the product of combustion that are occurring from the actual flame in the barrel of the gun. And stippling is the actual particles of gunpowder that strikes the skin and cause tiny injuries, burns, or abrasions from these burning or unburned particles of gunpowder that come out and hit the skin. Do they believe that the bullets came from a single gun? That's a difficult thing. The murder weapon weapons, we should say, because of the stab wounds and the use of a gun. It's always been quite difficult for the state to prove their case on one, if they located the murder weapons and two, exactly what was used to kill these two people. What we do have here though, captain is some interesting information. One, we have Todd Williams saying the whole place was secure. When I found the place, the doors were locked. The windows were locked. I come in, I break into the home to find my friends. Obviously, they've been murdered. They're sitting in the dark with the TV on. So whomever did this left the house and was able to lock the door behind them. Per the book Railroaded, it sounds like the most believable, most likely explanation for this is that the front door was not accessed by the killer upon leaving the home. It's believed that they went out the side door, which would be near the carport. Mm -hmm. And it was a setup as such. We've talked about this before on the show, where if you close the door behind you, it's going to lock. Yeah. But a lot of people in areas like this, you said they're roughly on five acres. A lot of people don't lock their doors. Correct. Correct. When they were found dead, all of the doors and windows were locked. And if it's a true statement that he was found holding a a spit can for Mm -hmm. his chewing tobacco, you would almost assume that he was shot first and then stabbed afterwards. Because I feel like if somebody was being stabbed, especially in the face, that they might not be able to, they wouldn't hold on to 
their spit can. Yeah, and that's the thing here, Captain. I think we can determine a few things from the brief description that we've been able to provide about the crime scene and about the two deceased victims. One, there's no obvious sign of a break-in, no forced entry into the home. So was this somebody that the Woodruffs invited in? Was it somebody that they knew? Or we've suggested this a few times where you also have a situation where somebody could have forced their way in simply by one of them answered the door, I put a gun in your face, and now I just walk you in. There's no sign of forced entry for that. The other thing that's difficult here and very troubling is the close proximity in which the gun had to be to shoot Dennis and Norma. Right. This person, whoever killed them, was able to put the gun right in Dennis's face, basically, and pull the trigger. There's no signs of Dennis defending himself. There's no sign of him flinching. It almost is as if he didn't think this individual would shoot him. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, it was a total surprise, but how is it a total surprise when the gun is so close to his face? Then with Norma, we see the opposite. We see obvious signs that she's trying to avoid whatever's about to happen. So Dennis was shot in the face. Then we have Norma, who turns in toward her husband, puts her hands up to try to block or defend herself. Mm-hmm. And we know this because one of the bullets that, and pardon me, there's no way of not being graphic with this, right. but one of the bullets, it went, it injured her hand, her finger. And then of course ends up in her, in her face. Well, and, see, this is also why I wonder, is it possible that this person got into the house and they were asleep? Um, you know, fell asleep watching TV and then the individual wakes them up by shooting, um, the father and then attacking the mother. But, but the stab wounds afterwards makes me believe that it'd be more personable. Right. And not just, I'm here to kill you. So I shoot you and then I'd be on my way. This person then took the time to pull out a knife or if there was two individuals, somebody pulled out a knife and then ended, uh, ended up stabbing these individuals in their face. And that's something I do want to point out as well. I don't think that anything at the crime scene particularly tells us one way or another, if this was one offender or more than one perpetrator, right? We do know that we have at least two weapons that were used in the commission of these homicides. So that actually points towards the possibility of more than one perpetrator the difficult thing here captain is as you said how does this go down in this exact manner it appears and we know this from the medical examiner statements that dennis shot a close range right in the face for whatever reason is not defending himself when that happens norma then realizes what is going to happen she tries to block or defend herself by turning in toward her husband putting her hands up And then we have the stab wounds. So it has been stated by the medical examiner that the gunshots happen first and then the stabbing. And as you pointed out and the state of Texas, as well as law enforcement agencies that work this case would tell us that this 
indicates that this was absolutely personal in nature, that this was someone that had a deep hatred for both of these people, not only wanted to kill them, make sure that they were dead, but you're kind of using the knife to actually destroy this man, his appearance, to mutilate him, to stab him nine times with whatever knife was used in this homicide. Which I'd normally say 100% of the time that's personal, but we do have evidence that they're having financial difficulties. And is it is there something that the public, their, their uh, friends and family didn't know about, or maybe they took a loan from somebody, um, maybe they didn't pay back somebody that they should have, and it's not as much of a personal thing as like, um, we're proving a point type thing. Right. The other thing I want to point out too is, was the gun used as necessity? And then at some point the perpetrator or perpetrators decide that to keep using that weapon, it's awfully loud. Someone might hear it. I'll finish the job with a knife or a bladed weapon. Yeah. Or yeah. Make sure the job is finished. Yeah. I've heard one theory and I don't want to get too much into all the theories that are out there because there is a big group of people that believe that Brandon Woodruff is in fact innocent of these crimes. And therefore they have theories as to who have could have committed this murder and how they went about doing it. Right. One of the theories that I just want to kind of, I'm going to go ahead and squash it right away is there's a theory that's been put forward that they were killed and that somebody close to them hated them so much. They showed up the next day and chose to stab Dennis after he was already dead. Mm. We know that theory cannot be. And that is because of the words of the medical examiner. It says the medical examiner could not determine the order in which the stab wounds were inflicted, but they all happened probably about the same time. And he Dennis was alive during all of them but I can't tell you exactly what order they happened in. But so, also if there, if it's just one gun at some point, that gun runs out of bullets. So the knife might've been used like the coroner saying to finish the job. And like you were saying, also the gun is loud. Yes. Yeah. We don't know why, but this attack started with a gun and then it ended with these stab wounds and again we can tell by the medical examiner's words these weren't stab wounds that took place at a much later time this man unfortunately was shot and then stabbed fairly quickly the gunshots themselves to these individuals would have been fatal at some point but we have the medical examiner who says the stab wounds happened while he was still alive the problem is captain that we have that big window of time sometime between Sunday evening and they're not found until three thirty, four o'clock on Tuesday. Right. There's a big window of time of when this could have happened. Now we can obviously shrink that down a little bit to try to figure out who had the means to carry out this brutal homicide. And one is they were both supposed to be at work on Monday morning. So I think we all can agree that this happened sometime before Monday morning. Yeah, I think that makes the most sense. And if we are to believe Brandon, 
he says that he had dinner with them and then he left his first duty when he left was to run an errand for his mother and then carry on to their old house in Heath, which this would be sometime after 7 p.m. What backs Brandon's story up is that there were two phone calls that took place in the seven o'clock hour. And this is both Norma and Dennis on the phone with relatives. During these phone calls, the, the relatives on the other end of the line both got the impression separately, separate calls, both got the same impression that Brandon had already left the house that night, that they were having these conversations after he left, after they had dinner. And I don't believe there was any mention of there being an argument or anything. It was just, he came to visit, he ate with us, he left. Yes, and without getting... I'm, I'm finding it difficult to go through this case because it's a real messy one. And it's almost like you have to tackle each of these issues as they pop up because one of the motivating factors that the state of Texas will say when prosecuting Brandon Woodruff is one of the reasons that he killed his parents was because he's gay, that he was living this secret gay lifestyle. Right. And that he, amongst other reasons, this led him to killing his parents. There's a big problem with that being a motivating factor and that being these two phone calls that took place in the seven o'clock hour on that Sunday. In at least one of the calls, Dennis is discussing Brandon being gay with his relative. The relative says it didn't sound like Dennis was angry about this. Didn't sound like Dennis was, uh, you know, mad at Brandon or thought that Brandon was living some kind of, secret life, the relative said that Dennis sound concerned for his son, stating that he worried about Brandon living that kind of lifestyle, that he thought that that kind of lifestyle was dangerous or it came with certain risk and that he probably didn't want his son to have difficulties in public, in his public life or treated unfairly because of his sexuality. Right. It's, you know, it's the same reason why there's there's kids with minor disabilities but parents will worry because of how society and kids will treat them and so it might be okay well you know you have no problem with your son and his sexuality but you know that there's going to be conflicts in his life because of it where the those conflicts might not happen or those just uh discriminations might not happen if his son were straight well, and people, I look for the good in everyone and I find a lot of good in everyone, but people in general are not always accepting of people that live differently than them themselves. Right. And so therefore out of ignorance, they will treat these people differently or unfairly because of they, of something they just don't understand. Well, and to be clear, did he, was he out to his parents before this dinner or was this dinner um, Hey mom, dad, I got to tell you something, but a lot of times parents know before the, the child ever comes forward. That is one thing that's pretty unclear in this whole situation, but I did want to point that out that he clearly didn't kill his parents to cover up the fact that he was gay or living a gay lifestyle right. because we have the relative saying after the fact. Dennis and I discussed this. 
his parents were aware. I don't know how aware they were or when they became aware. Right. But we know that 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 Dennis knew what was going on. Norma knew what was going on. And again, the relative saying the father didn't sound angry at Brandon. He sounded concerned. A question for you. We have no evidence of Brandon coming out in high school. Like two friends. Uh, I mean, you said the shit kickers didn't like it. So from what I found there, Captain, that it, it's very unclear. Okay. It sounds to me like right around the time that he was finishing up high school, his lifestyle is changing and noticeably to his friends. Right. And to others, he's Brandon's now dressing different. He's hanging out with a different crowd. And I don't know if the shit kickers, his old batch of friends, uh-huh. if they were just suspicious or if they were made, you know, if he told them outwardly, I have no idea which way that it went. It did sound like at some point, Mike Etherington and Brandon Woodruff, one time good friends, their families know each other. Mm-hmm. It sounds like not only did they quit being friends, but it sounded like they were they were feuding, like taking you know shots at each other as far as uh, insults and um, whatever was going down. There was some type of feud between the two of them. Well, he's somebody that should be looked at because I think a, a motivation for this is if he, within the last couple months, really finalized coming out to his parents, let's say, because the lifestyle was shifting and possibly some people knew, maybe some friends of his knew. Obviously, he was creating a, another um, social dynamic that knew uh, and he was living openly gay to them, that if it is finalized to the parents, was there um, a sexual partner that he had in high school or within his old community that is there then fearful that Brandon told them, told the parents, if that makes sense. That an old friend might be outed by Brandon and be feel threatened by that. Right. Because also possibility, look, you know, um, it's, it is an interesting thing when you're friends with somebody for almost 18 years and you've had a lot of conversations with them uh, about dating and girls that, you know, uh, one of my friends, that's pretty much all we talked about later come to find, well, that was just kind of a cover up. You know, he wasn't into girls. He's always been into boys, but that was his kind of cover. You know, if I, if I'm constantly telling my friends that I'm, I have a crush on somebody and he always picked like the top of the top. Uh, and, and, but he then told us well, I picked girls that I knew were way out of my league because then you wouldn't wonder why I never got to go on a date with them. Right. You know, it, it was just, Oh, you know, you're just not going to go on a date with them. They're out of your league. So it is an interesting situation because you you are shocked on some level, and then on some level you start going, well, maybe I, I kind of knew this all along. But if he would have then said, well, and I realized I was gay when I, I made out with one of our other buddies. None of his closest friends when he came out, none of us 
had any hatred towards him or discrimination towards him. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, obviously it's a different part of the country. Um, and sometimes in in those smaller communities, um, there's more of an ignorance to different lifestyles. And, but you also see sometimes these people that are, um, that, that discriminate the most against somebody's sexuality is because of their own hatred to their, to themselves, that they're a homosexual themselves and, but they hate themselves because of it. And then they hate anybody, uh, that out is going to come out. Well, I think what we can agree on here is a couple of things. One, it appears that Brandon's lifestyle wasn't such a secret that his parents knew this about Brandon, that they had some kind of conversation. This was something they spoke about. Dennis is concerned, not because he does not approve. It's more so that he's worried, concerned for his son. Everyone's always concerned for their children. This is just another one of those type things for Dennis. Now we should point out though, too, with Brandon that, you know, I say he's not living this secret lifestyle, but there were some extremes going on here because he did do some pornography work. Mm -hmm. And this was from my understanding in the summer to late summer of 2005. And this was gay pornography work that he did. Uh, He filmed a couple scenes in Dallas and a couple scenes down in Florida. From my understanding, this is something that took place over the course of two different weekends. And he was paid fairly well for his time. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that this is not something that Dennis and Norma knew about. Right. And look, whether your kid um, is a, a homosexual or a heterosexual, most parents are going to find that activity to be extreme behavior. Correct. You know, that's just, especially in, in Texas. And the way that this went down from my understanding, captain, and I actually don't think that this pornography work has too much to do with the actual case itself. Right. The state of Texas and the prosecutor would tell us different at trial. But from my understanding, the way that this went down was you, you get producers just like you would with any type of, you know, movies or entertainment or whatever that they find these, they're, they're looking for attractive young men to be in these movies. And it's not hard to find them because they'll go to some of the bigger cities that have cool gay clubs to get into right? and they hang out in the crowd, you know, and you find a couple good looking guys and offer them a position if they want one. But I think it's important to point out that the state of Texas and the prosecutor are going to tell us that his gay lifestyle is one of the key factors, one of the motivating factors for Brandon to kill his parents. And it doesn't seem that that's what was going on here. Do 
you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. 
With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Make sure you check out truecrimegarage.com and go to our blog and leave your opinions on this case. And let us know if you liked my singing there in this week's music. Yeah, it was a uh, sample of the colonel. (laughs) Okay, Captain, let's talk about the crime scene a little more. And this is more for the thought as to police theories and things that they were seeing at the crime scene. It says here, and this is from some court documents that I found that the police theorized that Norma may have been attempting to duck behind her husband. The crime scene investigation did not reveal any signs of forced entry, any signs of a struggle or any signs. The house had been ransacked. Investigator Tommy Granfield testified that he did not believe the position of the bodies was suggestive that the victims had been taken by that the victims had been taken by surprise. The wallets of Dennis and Norma were missing, but many valuables, including a handgun, a computer, jewelry, appliances, remained in the home. The police noted blood droplets in front of the couch and a trail of blood droplets leading from the couch toward the guest bathroom and bedroom. So it's believed that either blood is dripping off of the knife the killer or both after they killed the Woodruffs and then walked from that spot right Mm -hmm. there in front of the couch to the guest bathroom. And I'm guessing that is to clean up themselves, clean up the murder weapon. Mm -hmm. Later, we would find out that when police did the luminol testing throughout the house, they found a good amount of bleach in that bathroom. So it appears that the person or persons cleaned themselves up and anything else that they needed to, and then cleaned the bathroom afterwards. Well, we can't rule out that this was just a simple robbery and then they had to kill the victims, maybe because the victims knew who they were, or maybe that was just part of the plan. We can't rule that out, but it is suspicious that somebody went into a bathroom and cleaned themselves off. That could just be simply to have no trace evidence 
going back into your vehicle. I've always found it troubling, too, that they had just recently moved into this house. I know it's it's very unlikely, and this, thank God, is a very, very rare occurrence, but I have read cases where it's a mistaken identity, that somebody goes to a home and a new family lives there now. Right. And the offender is unaware that that is the situation. I don't know that that's the situation here, but I'm just throwing that out there. So how does Brandon Woodruff become suspect number one? Well, we have the Hunt County Sheriff's Office investigating this case, but they're doing it with the assistance of the Texas Rangers. The problem for Brandon will be he's got some missing time. He's got a missing window of time of where he's unaccounted for on the night that they believe that the Woodruffs were killed. So we both said that we can agree that they were killed sometime either late that Sunday night or very early Monday morning before they had to go to work. Mm -hmm. Well, investigators are going to shrink that window even more because what they're going to say is that the Woodruffs were killed sometime between 9.30-ish and 10.30 to 11-ish. Okay, But, But what time does he meet up with his friend? To get back to school. He meets Robert at the Denny's parking lot at 11 p.m. All right. So that's not looking too good for him. Right. And here's how they come up with this window of time. There's a phone call that takes place around 9 o'clock. And we kind of talked about this a little bit already. Remember, Charla is visiting extended family on that Sunday night. Right. She's at her grandmother's house. Grandma's on the phone with her mom, Norma. Grandma says to Charla, would you like to talk to your mom? I got her on the phone. That phone call takes place between 9 and about 9.20, maybe 9.30 at the very latest. All right. So we have another person, a witness, saying they were alive for that time period. So now we're shrinking that window a little bit. Charla says that she will call her mom when she gets home. She says that she tried calling mom and dad at 11 p.m. that night. And nobody answered. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the call forwarding. She's concerned that nobody answered. So that's how the police are going to come up with. They were killed during the time frame between 930 and 11 o'clock. The problem with Brandon's story. He was supposed to be there to pick up Robert between five and six. Then that gets pushed back to nine, nine thirty. And he doesn't show up to Denny's until 11 p.m. What the prosecutor and the Hunt County Sheriff's Office are going to tell us is that left enough time for Brandon to make it to the Heath house, do all this running around, commit murder, and then meet up with his friend at the Denny's. It gives him, you know, right. It puts him in the perfect time situation. But what is his excuse for all this? His excuse is that I told you everything that I did. I was just off on my times. Okay. And I've looked, there's a lot of people, as I said earlier, that are doing really good work on this case, trying to help out Brandon's case to prove that he is in fact innocent. And they all say about the same thing. You prosecuted this kid because he was off on his times. He wasn't lying about what he did. He wasn't lying, lying about when he did what he did. He was just off on the time. Well, the problem, the problem with that statement is you don't know. You don't, he may be lying. He may, he may have done this and just flat out lied. And now he's 
oh, I was off on my times. What we do know is that Robert says, I didn't see Brandon until 11 p.m. Right. So what is Brandon doing between that 736 phone call where he calls mom to relay the message about the horse and then when he finally makes it to the Denny's at 11 p.m.? Right. And I do have some, some uh, references here for you. Right, but real quickly, we do have travel time. So yes. we have to put that into account so we can shorten his window a little more. The other thing that's a little in his favor is that he did a favor for his parents and he was then going to take their truck and they were going to have his truck fixed. But one could also say, well, maybe he did that favor because it that was part of the setup. Right. So here's some, let's go through this distance between a couple of these locations, shall we? Okay. So we have the double wide. I'm going to refer to the new house as the double wide. That's on County Road 2648 in Royce City, Texas. We know that Brandon took that trip to the stables for his mom. And a phone call took place at 7.36 p.m. The stables, from the double wide to the stables, is approximately a 16-minute drive. From the stables to the Heath house, remember he says, I'm going to the Heath house because I'm going to pick up the fancy truck. Right. I'm going to take care of the animals, and then I'm going to go get Robert, and we're going to either go out for the night or we're going to go back to campus. So the stables to the Heath house is 30 minutes, and it's been said by several people, Brandon including, that it would take roughly 30 minutes for him to take care of all the animals at the Heath house Okay. from the Heath house to the Denny's. It's another 30 minute drive. So if he's already left the stables at seven 36, when that phone call is placed to his mother by Brandon, mm-hmm. then we have an hour and a half should have gone by before he arrives at the Denny's, which would put him at the Denny's at a little after 9 PM, but he doesn't show up until 11 p.m. So we are missing about an hour and 45 minutes roughly of what was he doing and when was he doing it. Right. Now there are several phone calls that happened during that time frame. The thing that kind of sucks for Brandon is Brandon will say that these phone calls point out that he was doing what he says he was doing and the phone calls would tell us he was nowhere near the murder scene at the time that that law enforcement are telling us the Woodruffs were killed at his trial. These phone calls that Brandon speaks of are not presented to the jury or at any point during the trial. Right. These, these phone calls, the phone records on Brandon's part have been lost. And that's simply due to time. His defense attorneys would tell us that that is on the fault of the prosecution and it's on the fault of law enforcement, that they failed to get his phone records. They got other people's phone records, but they didn't get his. Yeah. The difficult thing here, Captain, is there was some kind of transition going on between Singular and AT&T at the time. And I don't know if it was AT&T purchased Singular or what went down, but at this time in 2005 in this area, if you were an AT&T person or a Singular person, your calls would use both of their towers but they only have records for who his actual carrier were. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So they cannot really triangulate where they believe Brandon would have been during some of those phone calls. The problem for Brandon is we have one person that says, and this is Robert, who says, I didn't see him till 11 p.m. Robert also says, Brandon told me to tell everybody else that I saw him at 930, that he picked me up at Denny's at 930, not 11. That's weird. And Robert also says that during this missing period of time where we don't know where Brandon was, Brandon called me to make further arrangements. Remember, could you meet me at the Denny's? It's a, it'll save us some time. Right. Robert says that Brandon was breathing heavy during this phone call and the prosecution's going to point out, well, that's because he was exhausted from having physically murdered two people. But it's definitely suspicious when somebody shows up and says, Hey, by the way, tell people that I was here hour and a half earlier. Yeah. And I don't have any reason to not believe this Robert person, right. right? What is, what does he have to gain from any of this? He doesn't even seem to know Brandon real well. There's not a close relationship. He doesn't know Brandon's family. He's not a suspect. So I don't know why Robert would make this up mm -hmm. or other people have suggested maybe he's unclear about the times. I think he's pretty clear about the times he's, he's annoyed. He's been waiting hours, several hours after the original agreed upon time to get picked up. Then we have another weird story that comes out. And this is from Brandon's friends, the ones that he went to the club with that night. Remember, he picked up Robert. Robert agreed to go to the club. When they are driving back, some of the guys in the backseat of the truck are horsing around and they're going through some of the belongings in the truck. Brandon has a bag with him, like a, I don't know, like an overnight bag or a book right. bag. When one of the persons picks that up, they said that Brandon, who is, is usually very laid back, happy-go-lucky kind of person, was visibly upset and angry and told them to put his bag down. The prosecution tells us that there was something in that bag that Brandon did not want everybody else to see. Maybe it was a bloodstained shirt. Maybe it was one of the murder weapons or both of them. Right. But that he freaked out on these individuals because he couldn't risk anybody opening up that bag and questioning what was inside of it. To back that story up, not only do we have more than one person who says that that, that took place, we have a text message the next day from Brandon to his friend that says, I'm sorry I freaked out last night in the truck. They're saying that's referring to this whole thing with the bag. But then there's some weird things, Captain, that look like Brandon could be innocent. The first, which I think is the most bizarre thing in a lot of this case, is there's a phone call. We talk so much about these phone calls. There was a phone call that was placed to the Hunt County Sheriff's Office the morning after the bodies were discovered. And somebody had used the old Star 6-7 to block. To block, yes. They wanted to make an anonymous call, so anonymous that they didn't want you to know the phone number. Several of these calls were made on that morning, and it was a woman who is asking if they have any suspects in the murders of the Woodruffs. Why is that weird and suspicious? It's weird and suspicious because at that time, police had not announced to anybody that the Woodruffs were murdered. When the bodies were found, they notified their employers and they notified family. 
and they simply told everyone that the Woodruffs were found dead, that they had died and they died together. Now, you can take that a million different ways. Most people assume that it was some type of accident, a v, you know, a vehicle accident or carbon monoxide. I mean, there's a dozen different ways. Right. So it was not confirmed at that time with anyone that the two had in fact been murdered, yet they're getting a phone call to the sheriff's office from a woman who is asking if they have any suspects in the murder of Dennis and Norma Woodruff. They figured out that the caller was Norma Etherington. Remember, she's the mother of Mike, who is Brandon's former friend. Right. She's the one that had that weird feud with Norma Woodruff about the $500 4-H scholarship that Brandon got. So what is very bizarre here is not only do you have a feud between Brandon and Mike, you have a feud between the two mothers. It's almost like the Hatfields and McCoys at this point. It's like family against family. Right. There's a lot of things in this case, Captain, that just don't make sense. And they don't make sense for or against Brandon, depending on how you look at these different items. We mentioned the bag earlier where he got all upset that these guys were going to go through his bag. The prosecution tells us there's something in the bag that he didn't want us to see blood, soaked clothing, murder weapon, what have you. Right. Brandon's explanation for his behavior that night is that he had not fully come out to his friend, Robert. Remember what we got going on right now in Brandon's life is he's coming out, but he's also attending a Christian university. Those things don't usually work hand in hand together. And he says, Robert didn't know that I'm gay. I didn't want that bag opened up because then he would know that I'm gay. What doesn't make sense to me is his defense of his behavior. You took Robert to a gay club that night. You took him to a gay club with you, asked him if he wanted to go. But was it actually a gay club or was it a gay friendly club? And it was just maybe attended by more gay people than straight people. And it wasn't. I think that's very fair that you say that because I don't know for certain which it is. I I know what club that they went to that night and I've heard it described as both by different people. So yeah, that's, that's a very fair statement, but I do find it a little questionable. His explanation for knowing that they just went to either a gay club or a gay friendly club and hung out there most of the night. It could have been gay porn. It could have been sex toys. It could have been something that's also just embarrassing for people to be messing around with. That's true. That's true as well. Now we have yet to discuss the murder weapons. And we were talking about why the prosecution and the law enforcement agencies believe that Brandon should be the number one suspect Well, that's because of his quote unquote access to the believed murder weapons. Now, Brandon got locked up a couple weeks after his parents were killed and he was arrested for the charge of double homicide. Once he was locked up, his bail was set so high that he would not be able to make bail to get out leading up to his trial. Remember, we've talked about this plenty of times and look, there's not always something wrong with it, but sometimes there is. You have the right to a speedy trial in the United States. You just might not get one. Brandon's trial was about two and a half years after his parents were killed. That's ridiculous. Now, that could, again, 
Not always something wrong with that. Sometimes that's at the request of the defense. I don't know what the case is here, but it looks to me like the prosecution wasn't so confident about their ability to convict Brandon, meaning they didn't think that they had that strong of a case. Then, then you let him out a while you try to build that case. And here's why I think it points to the prosecution believing that they don't have a very strong case against this guy. One, are, they are going to present a bladed weapon, a dagger is what it's often referred to as, in court and say this was one of the murder weapons. And we found this at the, remember, the Woodruffs called it their barn at the Heath property. We found it there in the barn. Mm-hmm. And Brandon must have tried to conceal it and hide it there. They searched that barn a couple of times, didn't find it. But then two and a half years later, right before the trial, they find the dagger in the barn. That's poppycock. It has been described, and this is one thing that is very troublesome to me. I've heard experts say it cannot physically be the blade that was used in the attack, that it was probably a kitchen knife or something similar to a kitchen knife that was used in the attack. This is like an ornate, decorative dagger that's why they keep calling it a dagger Mm -hmm. some have even called it a sword because the blade was so large remember we mentioned that the the cuts the stab wounds the deepest one on either victim was five inches roughly five inches this thing is described as having a blade that's about 12 inches long wow now there's been other experts that say yes this instrument could in fact have made these wounds so expert opinion Different experts saying different things in regards to this murder weapon. It all depends on who's paying them. The problem for Brandon, though, is, and this is fact, this is not opinion, they did find a small drop of blood on the dagger, on like a underneath one of the decorative skulls that's on the dagger, on the handle. And it's described as it would be in a place that if one were trying to clean blood off of a murder weapon, that they might not look that this kind of, they forgot to clean this one little spot. Is there bleach residue on the, on the knife? If there is, it wasn't discussed at trial either way that there wasn't or that there was, it's, it's not mentioned. What is mentioned that's pretty damning here is that drop of blood is confirmed to be Dennis Woodruff's blood. Now, of course, there are ways that his blood could get on that knife and that knife not having been used to murder him, but it's very... Suspicious. Very sketchy. Very sketchy stuff. Now, there are some people that have even suggested that the police planted that knife in that location. I don't believe that. I don't have any reason to believe that. They seem to be open about, hey, yeah, we probably should have found it earlier. We just didn't go through every particular thing the first time we searched that area. The other problem for Brandon is that they will point out that he had access to the gun that they believed was used in the homicide. Remember we mentioned on that Saturday, the day before it's believed that his parents were killed, he spent the majority of the day helping out his old girlfriend his friend Morgan Lee. He was at her house on and off for most of Saturday. At some point in the investigation, after the Woodruffs are killed, the Lees tell law enforcement, hey, a gun is missing from our house. 
we had a decorative gun on display. It was on a shelf, like in a, I'm guessing in like a glass case for display purposes. Right. On a shelf in either a hallway or a spare bedroom. But it's regularly agreed upon that anybody that had access to their home had access to this gun. It wasn't stored in a way that some, if you were in their house, you could just, you could just take it. And it was loaded. They had ammunition. Yes, it was loaded and there was ammunition on display with this gun. Mm, That seems like a great idea. The prosecution would tell us that they believe that Brandon stole this gun on Saturday and then used it on Sunday to murder his parents. The Lees tell law enforcement, this gun is missing. We didn't notice it missing until the Woodruffs were killed, till sometime after they were killed. But when was the last time you handled that gun? Oh, about a year ago. Right. So it could have, in fact, been gone before the Woodruffs were killed. It could have been gone before Brandon had access to it on that Saturday. Right. That gun has never been found. And I think that the problem I have with the knife is against Brandon, it's got his father's blood on it. That looks very bad. But what the prosecution would tell us later is that the gun was probably thrown in a lake somewhere because they present at trial this guy that was in a cell that says, hey, at some point Brandon asked me if a gun with a wooden handle, if it would float to the top or how long would it stay submerged in water? Like he was concerned that they were going to find the murder weapon. Oh, I hate any of these jailhouse snitches. Here's the problem I have with this jailhouse snitch, amongst other things. I know you don't like him. I don't like him either. But it's like if he threw the gun that was used in a lake somewhere, why wouldn't he throw the knife in there as well? Why Why are we finding this knife in the garage? Because it was a sword, man. And he wanted. You got to keep that sword. It's a collector's it's item. It's a collector's item. It's going to yeah. be worth a lot of money someday. Yeah. Unfortunately. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you're going to dispose of the gun, why wouldn't you dispose of the knife? Unfortunately, what we have here, Captain, is Brandon is convicted of double homicide, and he's been in prison ever since. The thing that I have a, a big problem with is I've looked at this thing for the past week we've been looking at this case and I thought from from the get from Jump Street that oh we're going to come across something at some point in this next week that's either going to definitively for me prove that Brandon's either A innocent or B guilty yeah I can't find anything that tells me that he is in fact innocent I can't find anything that says to me 100% that he's guilty I am very suspicious of that missing time that hour to hour and a half that he's unaccounted for on that night it's been suggested this is what was going on or that was what was going on that he didn't lie to police but i don't know that until there were people that can back up where he was and what he was doing and when it when he was doing it or the fact that he tells his friend hey i was here an hour and a half earlier correct that's, that's very suspicious now in a lot of cases we don't have uh, the suspect talking, whether that's a interrogation or anything. But what we do have in this case is, and we played it in the trailer, it's Brandon telling his supporters, you know, believe me, I did not kill my parents. Mm-hmm. And normally you can get a sense, a, a gut sense of whether or not you believe the kid. 
in this case, it's so weird because it seems like he says a couple lines that make sense. And I go, okay, probably didn't. Then he says a couple lines where I don't think he's saying anything wrong. It's just the way he chose to say them. And that could have been nerves or whatever, but I kind of walk away from the whole, uh, him pleading his case to his supporters and still kind of throw my hands up. Like, I don't know. I don't think I learned anything from it. Well, in online, you can find the interrogation or questioning tapes when the Rangers and the sheriff's office are questioning Brandon. Right. And I've watched them and they're very interesting because his body language to me, never at any point, even for a second shows what I would believe to be a guilty person. He is, he's extremely cooperative with their questioning so much so that he's offering up to a DNA test. He's offering up, he's even telling them like, Hey, I'm not planning on sticking around in this city. I don't like it here. My parents have been killed. I'm probably not going back to college. I was failing anyway, and I don't really want to go back there. I'll probably go here. And I can't remember where he says he tells them where he's planning on going. I think it's to go off and stay with extended family which makes a whole lot of sense. It's just in a whole different city. Right. But he's so cooperative to the point that he doesn't have to tell them that he's planning on leaving the area. One, if he were guilty, I think, I think he wouldn't have told them that two, he doesn't have to tell them where he's going. And three, he even says, he even offers up that he will stay in the area long enough for them to clear him. As a suspect, when you're done, when you guys are all done with your investigation or you're all done looking at me, right. let me know. And then I'll, I'll wait till then to go. So super cooperative during the questioning process. It's one of those cases, captain, where I, I cannot find a reason to push me to one side of the table or the other, the innocent side or the guilty side. What I will say is I don't feel that Brandon, regardless of what people out there listening feel, if he's guilty or not. I feel that this guy got screwed in court. I don't think that this was a fair trial. And a large part of that comes from this fact. And this is known fact. It's in the court documents. We have a judge who had to make a ruling on this after the fact. It was proven that the prosecution was not only listening into Brandon's phone calls while he's in jail for two and a half years, mind you, leading up to the trial. Right. They were listening to phone calls between him and his defense attorneys. That's that's awful. Right. He, he should be. He's One, if you're going to hold somebody that long, I understand that you think he's a murderer. But if you think he's a murderer, then get him to trial. If you're going to hold him for two years, then release him. He should not have to sit in jail. It, it It's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. An it, innocent man shouldn't have to sit behind bars for a whole two years. The other thing too is I would I really want to know if Brandon came forward and and talked about any sexual encounters that he possibly had uh, in his community during high school. Would there be any individual that showed discrimination towards him that would be afraid of him possibly telling his parents or or telling the community? Well, this this whole mess right here is pure and simple abuse of power is what it is. I get it. Okay. This was taken to a higher court and a higher court had to make a ruling on this and determine that no wrongdoing took place. Uh, 
let's say horse shit. All right. I'm sure that's a term that they use a lot in Texas. Mm -hmm. That's what this is to me. Abuse of power. Because what they did here was let's take this guy, lock him up. We'll set the bail really high so he can't get out. And then in the time that we take to build our case, we're going to use him being locked up to our advantage to build a case against him by snooping on his phone calls. Now, I get what the court ruling says that, you know, they were told the inmates, the the people that are housed at that facility are told your phone calls will be recorded. I get that. That's fine. I also get that he was Mirandized. It says, you've been arrested for this charge and anything you say or do can and will be held against you in the court of law. I get that. The problem is, where the hell is the attorney-client privilege? Right. Okay? I get that they they presented... This has happened in other cases where they've presented um, Casey Anthony, her phone calls that she had while she was in jail locked up. They presented those at trial. They didn't present the phone calls between her and her attorney because right. that's privileged information. And that shouldn't be information that maybe it's not presented at trial, but prosecution shouldn't be able to hear that. And then I think the problem becomes, it just seems like they're discriminating against this guy simply because of his sexuality or that they've built this case against this guy. Maybe they really believe that he killed his parents and it has nothing to do with his lifestyle for them. Maybe they just really believe that he did it, but they're going to stack the deck against this guy, which is just unfair. That's not what our society has deemed to be right. Right. And the thing is too, the higher court ruling was that, well, none of the information gathered in those recordings was used against him at trial. So what? Well, Who cares? Well, you can't actually prove that because whatever information that the prosecutors heard, they could have changed their strategy based off the information they heard. So there would be no way of really proving unless they took um, direct words or direct uh, lines between those communications and presented those at trial. I agree 100%. And so it's one of those situations where I cannot tell you if Brandon Woodruff killed his parents. I can tell you this. There were other suspects that I would have looked at. These Etheringtons are weird. That whole family, Mike Etherington said lies to the police. We know that because he told police that he saw on Brandon's MySpace page that Brandon hated his parents and he wished they were dead. Mm -hmm. The police checked the MySpace page. It didn't say that. It said that he loved his parents. So why did Mike make that up? I find that really strange to go run an errand for your parents when you want to kill them and come back and kill them. Yeah. And to take it a step further, there Wait, was, hold on. I was just going to say, if they came back and said that Aaron was never run, I'd go, okay, well that makes more sense. But when they come back and go, okay, well we have proof that, that, that Aaron was run and go, but this doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, and to take that a step further there, captain, this is similar to the Eddie O'Brien junior case that we covered Back in August of this year, in episodes 416, 417, the Trail of Blood episodes, there was evidence at the crime scene that is directly related to these murders that was not tested and not presented at trial. And that is a difficult, bitter pill to swallow at the end of the day. There was hair found in Norma Woodruff's hands 
that law enforcement agree this. I'm going by their own statements. They believe that that hair likely came from the killer. Could it have come from Norma's head? Yes. Could it have come from her husband? Yes. Do we know where it came from? No, it was never tested and it was never presented at trial. Brandon Woodruff did not receive a fair trial. All right, thanks for joining us here in the garage. We want to hear from you. We want to know what your thoughts are on this case. Check us out at truecrimegarage.com and go to our blog and leave us a comment. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for this week? This week we are recommending Railroaded, the homophobic prosecution of Brandon Woodruff for his parents' murder by Philip Crawford Jr., available in both paperback and Kindle forms. Among those who have read Crawford's book is Catherine Ferguson. She is one of Woodruff's defense lawyers, and I found an online review that she wrote for the book, which says, quote, Mr. Crawford has done an excellent job of setting forth facts, not speculation or prejudice, that show Brandon Woodruff is innocent. Check out Railroaded, that great title, and many others are listed on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.